Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Phoenix Pod. Yavitz Djurjevic here, and a special guest host this week, Pat O'Brien, brought in the relationship and just a, a great presence. We uh, interviewed Micah Locker, who has a fascinating story, probably the least likely set of events ever in somebody's life to end up in commercial real estate, involved with the Phoenix Club for many years now, many connections, has uh, sponsored some of the, the nonprofits that we have worked with, and just an overall interesting guy and just uh, a fantastic, super interesting story. Ironically enough, he and his team developed the Russell Hotel, which is where we typically record the podcast and this was the very first podcast we did not record there due to my schedule so when you get a chance check out the russell hotel in east nashville whether it's for a staycation or you want to go record your own podcast they've got a great studio in there it's a super cool place and they've got some other um, old churches that they've turned into hotels in east nashville and downtown so um, outside of that enjoy micah's story it's great so enjoy the episode Micah, thanks for thanks for coming on. You know we've got uh, we've got myself and we've got Pat O'Brien here, two Phoenix Phoenix Club board members. Uh, so it's a it's a little twofer on the uh, on the podcast. I don't think we've done that since John Boots interviewed um, Brian Adams with me. So uh, we're 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 coming we're coming full circle on that front. But uh, Micah, tell us who are you? What's uh, what's your background? You know what what is it that you do, and how'd you get involved with Phoenix Club? Yeah, so I'm uh, Micah Locker. I'm 43 years old. I moved to Nashville in 2003, uh, straight from the University of Tennessee, which I can admit after 15 years of bad football, uh, not all of us are Georgia fans or Alabama fans, unfortunately, these days. Uh, But I'm uh, married to Britt for almost nine years, and I have three little kids, uh, two girls, five and four, and a son who's two. And um, yeah, man, I moved here straight from UT and got straight into the commercial real estate business. I started my career in the brokerage business, uh, selling and leasing office buildings with uh, what's now called Cushman and Wakefield here locally. It used to be, it was called Carter's 20 years ago, but um, it's all the people that currently work for Cushman here in town. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I, uh, I love the fact when folks say, you know, I, I came straight out of college and got into commercial real estate. So it's not really uh it's not like you, you go into college and you're like, Hey man, I'm going to sell and lease uh, uh office space or apartment buildings or whatever, maybe. So like, how did you end up, how did you end up in that world? Man, I had uh like I was telling you before uh, we started recording like you, I, I lived in North Memphis. So I had grown up in a family that uh, didn't have a lot of financial means and my mom, there's five kids in my family. My dad really never could hold a job. And my mom was, uh, had grown up in the projects of Memphis and, uh, she, you know, did her best, but she was high school educated. So I'm very passionate about what I call the working poor people like my mom who were hustling, but just couldn't make enough to really support a large family. And, um, and it wasn't for her being lazy. She, she worked harder than I do, but, uh, she was just capped financially. But so, when I went to college, my parents were like, Hey, you got to go to college, but you got to figure out how to pay for it. We don't have any money. And my dad, because he had really never held a job was like, man, you guys need to be like doctors, lawyers, dentists, like go to college, bust it, make good grades, go to professional school. And then like, if you become a doctor, you'll always have a job. So I was like, great. I'm really good at math and science. And I went pre-med in Knoxville and it took about two years of sitting in labs all day to realize that I didn't want to go to 12 more years of college. And, um, I, uh, I met an entrepreneur. I did a fraternity at UT and one of my buddy's dads, uh, I remember we were home for like spring break or something. And my buddy called and was like, do you want to go play golf? And I'm like, sure. How much does that cost? And he's like, uh, we'll put it on my dad. Like, let's go to the country club. I'm like, hell yeah, free golf. I'm in. And I remember showing up and we went to the range and his dad was there and it's like a Thursday. And I'm like, what are, how how, are you not working today? Like, like how, how are you here? Like, do you not have to be at work? And cause most of my friends, dads, you know, had like normal jobs and I didn't even know you could like, I knew people own businesses, but I didn't know it was possible like for me to own a business. And, um, and he's like, oh man, I worked late yesterday because I knew you guys were going to play golf and I, I wanted to come spend some time with you guys. And I'm like, what do you do? He's like, I own a business. And I was like, oh my gosh, like tell me more. And that got me so fascinated in being an entrepreneur. And that was at the same time where I was like, man, I can't 
spend 12 more years in school to be a doctor. Like this is a, I don't, I'm not that interested in it. So I switched to uh, a finance major at UT and then I was um, just dead set on going to work in New York and work on wall street, uh, which I ultimately did my senior year. And, um, but thankfully I had a college mentor that was like, because from the time I switched my major, I was like solely focused on going to New York and I worked for brokerage companies in Knoxville. I was just like dead set on going to wall street. And, uh, so I went and worked in New York and then because I'd switched majors, I had to come back to UT for an extra, um, the victory lap, the extra fall to, uh, finish all my credit hours. Cause I had lost a bunch of credit switching from the science college to business. And my mentor was like, dude, you ought to, um, He's like, are you going to go back to Newark? I said, yeah, man, I love it. I'm going to go work up there. He's like, what are you going to do your last semester? And I was like, man, I don't know. Probably just go back and work for a brokerage company. And he's like, we already have a job. Like, why wouldn't you try some other industry? And I was like, man, I'm going to New York. And he's like, well, is there anything else that interests you? And I said, well, uh, real estate's the only other thing. He said, go work for my buddy. You got nothing to lose. And it might change your mind or it'll more solidify your decision to go back to New York. And I had been there like a month or two and I was like, this is such a better fit than being an analyst on Wall Street and stuck in a cubicle, you know, the rest of my life. And um, so I worked for a man in Knoxville and then uh, it's taken me becoming an older man to realize what a gift he gave me. But like, he's a really great guy named Sam Furrow over in Knoxville. And um, so I worked for him and I loved him and it was a, he ran a really great company there. And I said, hey, when I graduate, I'd like to come work for you. And he said, um, man, I'm not going to hire you. And I said, gosh, I thought like I was doing a great job. And, and he said, you are doing a great job. And I think you have a lot of long-term potential. And he said, I believe keeping you in Knoxville would hold you back. Like he said, like, if you were one of my kids, I'd send you to Charlotte or Nashville. He said, they're just growing. He said, in real estate to make money, you got to be in a growing market. And he said, I've done great in Knoxville, but like, it's a small town. And he said, so I'm not going to hire you because I'll be holding you back from your potential. And I was like, honestly, super disappointed because I just love this guy and thought so much about his character. And, um, and he's like, but, but once I got a little older, I was like, man, what a selfless act for him to, you know, it's like, cause now I own a business. And if you got a young hustler, you're like, man, you want to try to keep them on your team. But I was like, what? And it taught me, you always got to put people first, sometimes to your own detriment. But like, he gave me a huge gift because I think I would have done fine in Knoxville, but like moving to Nashville 20 years ago, I mean, it's been such a great opportunity. This town has grown like crazy and Knoxville's not really, I mean, it's grown a little bit, but it, I, I could have been a successful real estate guy in Knoxville, but that's different being a successful real estate guy in Nashville. There is so much to unpack in <laughs> what you just said. Um, first thing. So you graduate from Germantown high school in the Memphis area. You go to Knoxville, you join a frat, you uh, get into finance and then you get into real estate. So that sounds like the most stereotypical, like upper middle class, upper class upbringing ever. But then the reality of it is you've got this incredibly challenging background and, and what you call the working poor, which I want you to elaborate a little bit more on, because I think I've met a lot of commercial real estate folks in my life. Can't name any that have your background. <laughs> And it, it kind of goes back to the, what we talked about before we started recording. Like we, we, per, we in, unintentionally just by life end up in these bubbles of people who are similar to ourselves. How has that shaped the way you view the world and the way you view um, just people? Because I've come across this in my own social, social circles where generally folks have a good amount of flexibility in their lives to go golfing on a Thursday morning. And they almost look at the folks who don't have the capability to do that. Just like, well, what do you mean you can't do that? The same way you looked at it and said, what do you mean you can do that? There's a disconnect. So elaborate a bit, elaborate a little bit more on that working poor and, and how that's impacted you. Man. I mean, obviously it's just changed my whole life. Like I, I've always said, like I, I was as good of friends with the janitor in my office building as I was the CEO. Like I have a big heart for a lot of different types of people because you know, my experience growing up was you have a lot of really good people 
that like, I think there's this perception, a lot of people in our country are poor because they're lazy or don't want better, but it's just not the facts. Like, obviously there is a segment of the population that's true, but like, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are busting their butt, but because of their background or their educational opportunities, they've been limited on their advancement in life. And, um, but like what happened to me was is somebody exposed me to a bigger picture, you know? So I didn't know, I didn't even know it was possible to be an entrepreneur and own your own business until this man invested in me. And so, you know, I, I told you before we recorded, but my family feels like our story is a bit of a miracle because I was able to go to Germantown high school because somebody gave my family a home. I'm I'm a person of faith. I'm a Christian. And like, we believe that God gave us the house, but it was like an unlikely story because we lived in Frazier, super rough. It was getting so dangerous. And my mom was like, man, we got to get, we got to get y'all out of here. Like somebody's going to get hurt, you know? And so, you know, my mom's like, financially we could afford to move to like Raleigh, which is rough, but a little bit better. But it was like, my mom had dreamed of moving to Germantown and like prayed about it all the time. And you know, back in the day, you looked in the newspaper every weekend for houses. And, uh, and one time she found a house, like with the mortgage we could afford in Germantown. She rushed out there. My grandmother's in the car, all the kids packed in a station wagon. She goes out there and I always joke cause I'm a real estate developer, but I was like, it was like grossly misrepresented, which most stuff in real estate is like, it was like a burned out duplex. <laughs> you know, it was like, it said it was like a single family. It was like a duplex. It needed to be torn down. It was like so bad. And, um, and so, but my mom took a wrong turn and drove by this house at a for sale by owner. And my grandmother's like, you need to take down that number. My mom's like so discouraged. She's like, we're never going to be able to afford it out here. Like this was just a dream. And my grandmother writes down the phone number, puts it in my mom's coat pocket. And like a week later, my mom's like, I feel like I should call these people. Like, I feel like God wants me to do this. So she calls this and tells this lady kind of our sob story, got five kids, all this stuff. And the lady's like, well, the bank's going to foreclose on my house. I owe $90,000 on it. Here's what my payments are. And if you'll just pick up my payments, I'll give you my house for free. And the house was probably worth like 200 grand or something. And the lady could have made like a hundred grand, but she's like, if she, and the craziest part of the story is she said, my husband lost his job. So we got three months behind our mortgage. Thankfully he just got a new job, but it's in Alaska. And she said, I will give you my house for free. If you buy me two plane tickets to Alaska Well, the craziest part of the story is my mom was answering phones at the time for Delta airlines working the night shift so she could hang out with us during the day. And so she got her boss to give her two free plane tickets and they literally gave us the house. And that like, changed my family's life. Cause you know, I was telling you before, like, you know, like my life, I mean, my siblings and like to debate, but going to Fraser high school versus Germantown high school, like I doubt I'm being interviewed on this podcast today, or maybe I'm being interviewed for different reasons, but, uh, I mean, you know, maybe we could have made it out, but that would have been so rough. But then we went to Germantown, got around different type of people who thought bigger of the world. And it just, but like, but I still always had the mindset of like a blue collar kid, that like, you know, most, like some of my friends were wealthy. A lot of my friends were poor. It's just like, I just treated everybody the same. That's so interesting. Pat, were you aware of this background in this story at all? Yeah, Michael, I mean, we've talked some about your background and, and, you know, it's interesting to me to always think about what is the genesis of, of someone's success, what they do with that success. And you're someone that, that I think about as having a, a really compelling story behind the why of, of you know, not only why you've been successful, but why you choose to really, you know, go above and beyond relative to even some of your peers that have had the success that you've had and the way that you give back, the way that you're philanthropic, how thoughtful you are about being a part of the community. So uh, the more I learn about your background and, you know, what, what life looked like for you for the better part of your life, I think the more that fills in the details around why it is you're so motivated to be involved with groups like Phoenix Club and, and a million other ones around Nashville. So uh, elaborate a little bit more on you get to Nashville, you get a new commercial real estate. What does that evolution look like? Because obviously Nashville's evolved a lot in 20 years. 
You know, I mean, I uh, I came here in 2014 and I don't recognize the city. And and me neither. <laughs> yeah, and again, as a as a young 33 year old with a with a growing family, I feel like it's hard to not feel like the rug got pulled out from underneath you a little bit. Um, and cost of living and cost of real estate and cost of everything where, you know, I mean, again, my wife and I were talking about it and we're like, man, if we were three years older, how different of a position we'd be in for no other reason than just being three years older. Like everything else stays the same. We just bump up, (laughs) you know, to 2019 right now or four years older. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of growing pains. There's a lot of adjustment. There's a lot of really cool stuff with it and, and really exciting um, aspects of it. So I don't know. How do you analyze that, uh, your own evolution the last 20 years and the evolution of the city? Man. Uh, yes, Nashville, Nashville has changed drastically. Like I thought the first 10 years I lived here, it was changing, but the last 10 years and really the last seven years, it's like, we're in a whole nother stratosphere. You know, I mean, it's, you know, used to, I, I love real estate and i read a lot about it. And like, I laugh, like early in my career, I could pretty much drive by any construction site in Nashville and be like, Oh, here's what's being built. This guy, I know this guy, he's building it. Now I'm like having to Google stuff. I mean, there's so much going on. I'm like, and then it's some developer out of Canada and you're like, I don't even know. Like just the, I mean, there are a lot of positives. There are also negatives. Like, like you guys, I have a major concern about affordability in our city because, you know, we've recruited team members from other cities and always tell them like, Hey, you're going to love Nashville, but like full disclosure, the housing is super expensive, whether you rent or own. And I'm like, I hope our city will address that issue to the extent we can, because it's just getting very expensive. And, you know, you don't want your whole team to have to live an hour outside of town, you know, just to be able to afford a house and send their kids to school and all the things we have to do. So how do you address that though? Well, I mean, I have a lot of like, the government's going to have to help. I mean, I believe in the private industry, but like there are mechanisms that if like, you know, they could waive permit fees and, you know, reduce impact fees. I mean, there's a lot of things that we as developers deal with that just add substantial cost of projects, but don't give any benefit. And that ultimately just gets passed through to the consumer. And so if, if the city is serious about affordable housing, I mean, they could reduce property taxes, you know, on that site that was producing no property tax. I mean, there's pilots, there's things that other cities do where, because the construction costs these days are what they are. So you, you know, you, you need some help to, to make the math work where you can have a profitable development. Um, you know, that can pay your bank loan, pay your investors, but also like keep the rents as low as possible. Yeah. It's just a, it's just an interesting problem because there's so many, there's just so many different moving pieces because again, 33 years old, married kids. If you told me five years ago, six years ago, $600,000 for a house, I would have been like, I made it. I'm done. <laughs> I made it. This is like where we can raise a family and being good, a good school district. And now 600,000, I'm like, well, I mean, I get like, okay, sure. We'll, we'll have to upgrade in a couple of years again. And, and it's, it's this, it's this thing where you almost end up in a, in a, a doom spiral for an entire generation because people start asking themselves like, okay, how am I supposed to do this? And then I don't know if you guys have been keeping track of just I mean, I think on Wednesday, no, last Wednesday, mortgage rates, uh, residential mortgage rates um, have hit an all-time high since 2001. So, you know, it's 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 not only the cost, but also the cost of borrowing and the cost of existing. And then not just that, but also all the other costs associated with it. So it, it puts you in a scary perspective of what, where does this city go 10 years from now? Because- you we've we've enjoyed this wonderful growth and expansion but part of that wonderful growth and expansion was that the deal was weather in Nashville sucks infrastructure is not great but you can have a great house and a great cost of living for 450 grand yeah and that deal's well, kind of gone <laughs> you got these greedy bankers like pat out there charging us a fortune <laughs> right right just- i'm just kidding pat you can't control the fed no i mean I do believe at some point, I mean, the nice thing about the real estate markets is they do correct themselves on both the residential and the commercial side. Like I do believe at some point values will 
reset. I mean, right. but like if I, uh, if I knew that y'all be interviewing me for the beach today and, and sitting right. at my office working, you know? Right. So, uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, uh, but I do hope that like city officials, I'm sure the mayor will listen to this interview. I'm sure. Uh, but I, I, uh, you know, I do hope that to the extent they can do some of that, like we just need more affordable housing and, you know, these, all these apartments being built are two, three thousand dollars a month. It's like, that's not affordable for most people. Well, and you also end up in a situation of we, uh, you know, developers are going to develop what's profitable for them, you know? And then, like you said, there are certain mechanisms and costs that are in place that are cost prohibitive for building out. Let's use single family homes. I mean, the starter home quote unquote, doesn't really exist anymore the way it did 20 years ago, 30 years ago. You know, where's the three bedroom, one and a half bath house that a young couple in their twenties can buy? It doesn't exist. And why? Well, because it's not as profitable because of a million other things, the cost of, you know, the cost of doing business, et cetera. So, um, so let me ask you this within the, within the real estate world, what do you do today? So my day job is buying shopping centers around the country that are underutilized. So think Kmart's, Big Lots, you know, just kind of whatever town people are from. We go in and buy that shopping center that you've driven by since you're a kid that used to be busy and vibrant. Now you're like, is something wrong there? Like half the place is empty. There's nobody ever there. That's what our company focuses on is revitalizing older shopping centers all throughout the country with a focus on the Southeast. Um, and then I always say my, my side hustle is we buy old churches and uh, we convert them into boutique hotels. We've got one downtown and two in East Nashville. We'll have a third in East Nashville soon. And then that is a for good business. We, we publicly commit to give the majority of our profits away, but pretty much every year we give a hundred percent of the profits away. And we partner with seven local inner city charities and give them all the proceeds from those hotels. Um, but I'm able to do that financially because of our, our shopping center business that can feed my family, pay my team. And then it, but it's been fun to create a whole business that just exists to, to do good. I love the the church concept because so <laughs> the irony in the fact that this is the first interview we're not doing at the Russell because of my schedule, but <laughs> we have recorded every single episode <laughs> at the podcast studio in the Russell hotel. So, um, it, it, uh, it, yeah, like I said, the irony of us recording this and, uh, via, via virtual. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, the Russell's one of our hotels and the podcast room has been cool just for, you know, it was like for us, like we have a limited marketing budget because of our size and the fact that we give so much money away. So like we put that in there, hoping people would record podcasts and say, Hey, oh, today we're recording from the Russell hotel and it's just free marketing for us. And it gives them the benefit of having a cool podcast studio where they can, you know, use it for free and record their podcast. So, so what is the story of the Russell? So the Russell, so well, I'll back up a second. The way we got into that business was is I used to own some rental houses in town with a good friend of mine. And when Airbnb launched, I'm like a lifelong learner. And I read about Airbnb and my buddy and I were like, uh, what, you know, let's try it. Like we're out $10,000 in furniture. And if it works, we probably make a lot more than rent in like a cool house in a cool neighborhood. But if it doesn't, we'll just do like a furnished rental. So we tried Airbnb. And in the early days of Airbnb in Nashville, I mean, it was like a, license to print money. So we right. quickly converted a lot of ours that were in the cool neighborhoods, to Airbnbs, and it was a good run. But I had told my friend, we were managing all these Airbnbs all over and it wasn't the day job for either of us. We both had our own businesses. We just did the rental houses on the side. And, um, I was like, man, it'd be really cool if we could ever put like a bunch of these in one building, like buy a building and put a bunch of Airbnbs. So we bought a building downtown. I did seven years ago and, uh, and opened five or six lofts. And then a couple years after that, I was driving through East Nashville and literally a realtor sign had just popped up in the yard of the Russell. That church had just shut down. And it was actually ironically a friend of mine. And I called her and I'm like, Hey, what's the deal? And what's the story? And she, I was like, I'm not opening a church, but I was like, I uh, have this idea to build a hotel. And I was like, if the sellers will give me enough time, 
this building is beautiful. Like yeah, I would make a really cool hotel, but I was like, I'm gonna have to go get it zoned. So they got to be patient. But like, but I'm like, we give all the money away. So I think it would align with the church's mission. And, and, and luckily they were just great sellers. Like the church believed in what we were doing. And, um, and you know, they always say in real estate, the number one rule is never fall in love with a project or a building. And I said, unfortunately, I fell in love with that building. I mean, y'all been in it. It's just so beautiful. And and I was, I mean, part of me is like, I love historic buildings and I didn't want somebody to tear it down because, you know, sadly in Nashville, a lot of that cool stuff. I mean, I always say there's a difference between old and historic. You know, some buildings are like old block buildings they have no character, no history. And it's like some of those need to go. But like places like the Russell or the Fabric, I mean, that that church was there way before the neighborhood was. And so I was like, man, I'd like to save this. There's so much history of that building and what they did for the neighborhood. And, you know, they like house soldiers. And, you know, if there was uh, the, the flu pandemic, they were the place where you went and got your shots. And like, so it had done, it had just been part of that neighborhood for 130 years. And so I was like, I'd like to save it. And this hotel gives us the economic model to do it. So we opened the Russell uh, four years ago. Um, and it's been great. We love, it's just a beautiful, you've obviously been through it. So it's just such a beautiful building and it's super cool. It kind of blows people's mind when you, you know, they book it and they're from Canada and they come to Nashville for a concert and they walk in the lobby and they're like, wow, this is like most people have never stayed in an old church. Right. What do you, um, I think I know what you mean, but can you clarify what do you mean it was there before the neighborhood was? Was it just like built out in the middle of the country? And Well, you know, like historically, like I, I learned this through the zoning process, but historically, like you didn't get like, like when East Nashville was built, that was all just zoned like residential. You know, it's just like all those houses on Russell Street, the the ones that haven't been torn down historic, like the church just bought a couple lots in the neighborhood and like built a church, you know, mm. like, so I should say like it was built in conjunction with all those historic homes, but like all the stuff on Main Street and all that stuff. I mean, it used to just be a bunch of historic homes and the church would just go and buy a couple lots and build the church right in the middle of the neighborhood. And so most of the old churches in Nashville, they're all zoned residential. They're not zoned for a church. So you have to go get them rezoned um, if you ever want to do anything different than a church. So it was uh, it's just always been part of that neighborhood. Interesting. Interesting. Pat, how do you feel if, uh, as, as our resident banker here, somebody comes up and says, I'm turning up, I'm turning a church into a hotel, man. Not, not my, uh, asset expertise. So fortunately <laughs> we, we've got folks that, that specialize in that, but, um, I mean, as a, as a resident, I would say I'm, I'm always enthusiastic about work that's being done on buildings that have some sort of some sort of significance to a community. So to the extent that the, the original intent and use of that building, you know, may not, may no longer exist or might not exist at the same level anymore. Um, you know, I think that there is value from a community standpoint of, of preserving that as much as we can. And, you know, I'm changing a little bit, but Micah, you, you talked about the fact that that business of yours essentially exists to to be philanthropic and, and to give away profits. I'm curious, what have you found to be, you know, how is the fact that that's really the sole purpose of the, the business's existence changed the economics of how you acquire those, how you operate them positively or negatively? And, and so that could be, you know, you, you mentioned a, maybe a lower selling price, um, I'm, I'm curious from a operational standpoint, though, you know, occupancy rates, you know, do you do you anecdotally at least get get reports of people that are coming to stay at the Russell or anywhere else because they're kind of aware of what y'all are doing? I'm just kind of curious. And, and it might be helpful, too, because we've got a lot of members in our club and, and hopefully listeners of the podcast that are not members that are business owners, are entrepreneurs. And, you know, the, the idea of a social enterprise might be interesting to them. So I'm just kind of curious how the decision to, to basically set the business up in that way has changed how you operate it and, and what it looks like versus a for-profit business. Yeah. So, I, well, we always preach to the hotel team, like we have to deliver excellent quality, like to our clients. Like if we're just a crappy hotel with a crappy experience and bad service and dirty sheets, like 
some people would still say would stay with us because they're like, oh, this is so cool. They give money to homeless people and all this. But like ultimately, I always tell our team, like, the best news for us is if somebody books and as they're checking out, they go, Oh my gosh, this is so cool. I didn't even know they gave the money. Like they booked it because it's an excellent hotel, great location, wonderful experience. We want the charity aspect to be just the, the cherry on top for them that it's like they would have stayed with us no matter what. Because, you know, one thing I have learned in this digital age is we used to not have any physical signage at the hotels and y'all know going over there, but we have a lot of, we have that really cool sign when you come in now that says what our mission is. But what we realize is because people are so digitally inundated these days, like our emails and text all said, Hey, thanks so much for helping those in need. Like click here to learn more about our mission. But we would have so many people that would stay with us and never even know that they helped um, homeless people or single moms or people learning workforce skills by staying. But that being said, we do have a segment. Like if you went and read all of our reviews, I bet you 20 or 30% of them are like, Hey, I booked this because I thought it was super cool. The reviews were awesome on TripAdvisor or Google and they give money away. So, um, but it's, um, it has been once people stay with us, they're super loyal to us because they're like, it just blows their mind. I mean, nobody's ever stayed in a hotel. Like I always joke that we're the only hotel company in America that gives away the majority of profits and will always be the only hotel. Like it's not a good business idea if you're, you know, but for us, it's a mission, it's a mindset. And we're thankful for other businesses that allow us to do it. But like, I hope one day we're not the only hotel company in America that does it, but it, you know, most people aren't going to start a business to, to give away the majority of their profits. And I love the, this is just my history nerd ass, you know, side coming in. I'm one of these people that I will look up deeds of properties just for fun to like, see the story of it because I just find history fascinating. So just the ability of you know, think about all the things that have happened in that building and all the people that have come through there and all the weddings and all the baptisms and all the funerals and all of the, you know, every single thing. And a place maintains a piece of each one of those stories inside of it. And you can feel that when you walk into a place versus, you know, there's nothing wrong with a brand new, you know, hotel being built by Omni or whoever, uh, but you walk in and you're like, okay, cool. Like it's a really nice hotel. Um, whereas something like that, it's like, you can, you can feel the energy of, of the past. You're asking Absolutely. if there are ghosts there, right? <laughs> <laughs> not, not, none that we've confirmed, but it has been fun to your point. Like one time we found like an 80 year old couple there and they had grown up going to that church. They were like back in the town and they'd go to stop by and then realized it was a hotel and they were like crying in the lobby. They're like, this is so beautiful. Y'all did such an amazing, obviously we're sad that the church shut down, but like what a beautiful restoration. I'm so glad somebody didn't tear it down. So like to your point, like I feel the same way you do like buildings do hold emotions and history and it's fun to be able to preserve those for past generations yeah exactly now one one question i'm I'm changing the topic a little bit but i actually want to know as little as possible about the people i'm interviewing when i interview them so that so my natural curiosity runs with it so talk to me about and pat feel free to chime in um the connection here to phoenix club So I've joked with Pat about this. When I moved to Nashville 20 years ago, I felt like the Phoenix club was people like extending their fraternity life. Like, I mean, it was the best parties in town and I love that they raise money, but like I had done in fraternity, I was working enormous hours trying to, I mean, I was in a commission only job trying to survive. And so I went to all the parties, but I was like, it was just a bunch of dudes throwing great parties, which I thought was fun. A lot of my buddies did it, but I'm super proud of you guys like, and the, like now it's like a leadership development, all the y'all are doing like real work and the size of the grants are super impressive, but I got reconnected through John Boots and Pat and these guys. And like, I had told them, I love y'all's model of philanthropy because, you know, there's a million great organizations in Nashville that need money, but I like how you guys are vetting the need because not every organization needs the money right now. Or like, there might be another organization where that $25,000 grant is going to impact a lot more lives than given to these guys who might need it, but they are not, they don't need it to the extent or can't have the same level of impact. So I had expressed to these guys, I was like, 
hey, our company gives away significant amounts of money every year. I frankly just don't always have the time. I know the organizations I know, but there's a lot of other people in town doing really great inner city work. And I just don't have time to go meet them all. So I was like, if you guys have like a really compelling need and y'all want a partner, please call me. I was like, we'd love our company. I'd love to partner with you guys on grants and like join the good work that you guys are doing. And if you don't need a partner, no worries. But if you have a bigger request or something, then y'all have a budget, like call me and I'll pitch in and I can invite some of my buddies uh, who want to do good as well, but might not know of a need. So that was really how I got reconnected to the Phoenix club. I love the, I love the best parties in town part. <laughs> just like just a bunch of 24 year old bros being like, Hey, we need, we need to keep partying. Yes. And they were great parties and I still like going to a good party. So, uh, but it was like, it was all the parties and they did raise money, but it was like first and foremost, an epic party. Right. All right. The, the, the raising money was a byproduct of a partying, not, not the <laughs> so, so what has, um, so I'm, I'm always curious about this because I think it's good for us to just get the general feedback. Um, and you touched on it a little bit, but you know, it is a big deal for somebody to part with their money and give it to another organization that essentially is going to give it to another organization. I mean, that is a, that is a, that is a big responsibility. It's a big honor. It's a big ask. It's a big everything. So what, what in particular about how Phoenix club approaches the need of the community has, has really appealed to you on that front? Well, I just love that y'all are making these charities, like you're not making them, but you're saying, Hey, you got to have a business plan. You got to tell us like, what are you going to do? Because, you know, we have a lot of people that find us and know that we're generous and they'll just, Hey, can you give us $10,000? Like, what are you going to do with it? We're going to do some great things. Just trust us. It's like, well, like tell us the impact you're going to have. I mean, y'all experience that at the Venus club too. Some people just aren't quite ready for the money or they need it, but they don't even know, like, what are you going to do? Hire a marketing person. You're going to hire another social worker. Like they're just like, we just need to go raise more money because they're bored saying, Hey, go raise more money. We need to have more impact. But like money and impact doesn't always line up. Like there's some really big charities in town that have huge budgets that don't have the impact of charities that have a $200,000 budget. And so, you know, I just like, um, the process you guys run where it really makes them, it's really a blessing to the charity because it makes them think through, well, if we got 50 grand. How many more people could we help? What would we do with it? Who would we hire? What would we spend it on? And, and making them go through that process is really making them think through their business, you know, and, and all of us, like people in this podcast invest and everything else, like you would never invest in a business that doesn't have a plan. You shouldn't invest in charities that don't have a plan. You know, and I mean, personally, like obviously somebody's water gets shut off. I'm the first person to say, man, I'll pay. I mean, you don't have to have a plan, but I'm saying like when they're running a true nonprofit, sometimes you just need to write a check to help somebody in a dire situation. But like if they're running a nonprofit and they're asking for, you know, significant investment, they need to, they need to go through the process. It helps them, frankly, more than it helps you guys make the decision because I know Pat's experienced this, but some of them go through that process only to realize like, we're not quite ready to grow like that. Like we need to get some more people on our team and get a better board if we're going to go grow. So y'all putting them through that process, the vetting process really is giving them a great gift. Yeah, I mean, there are so many great nonprofits that for busy professionals, I think, I think the, the big challenge is really trying to figure out where do you place your bets and, you know, which nonprofits are, are most deserving of, of your resources because in a lot of cases, I think people make philanthropic decisions that are based largely on emotion and that's not entirely wrong. And it, you can, you can sympathize entirely with someone that, you know, makes philanthropic decisions based on emotion because, you know, the, the nonprofit that they choose to support is supporting some cause that tugs at their heartstrings. I mean, that's totally understandable. Um, but I, I was happy, Micah, to hear you hit, hit on something that's important to us as we're talking to partners like you, which is recognizing this problem that exists where, you know, the, the nonprofit landscape is, um, 
is really large and there are a lot of options to choose from. And if you're someone that's running a business or someone that's um, that's had a lot of success or, or is busy with, with other engagements and you just simply don't have time or, or maybe even experience to sort of suss out which of those nonprofits are, are most deserving. I think one of the big advantages that the Phoenix Club op- offers to groups like yours and, and a lot of our other development partners really is, you know, we've got a process in place and a bunch of young guys that um, are, are willing to put in a lot of hours underwriting these grants and making assessments about which ones are, are going to be the best use of our resources and your resources. And so I'm, I'm always happy to hear someone like you that's kind of seen what we do and has got a lot of different options say to us that, hey, we, you view us as sort of an outsourced underwriting arm. Um, that, that, I think, is kind of how we grow. And, and I think the, the more we get that message out there, the more opportunity we've got to, to have a bigger impact. Hundred percent, and I think for anybody listening, like if they do have excess means, and they're like, "Oh man, I got, I got this money. I want to give others where I don't know." It's like partnering with you guys. Y'all didn't ask me to say this, but it is true. But like, I do think the Phoenix Club for people that do want to give some money away can feel very good about, "Hey, this has been very vetted, and this money's going to a good spot." And 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 like a lot of people running businesses, they're busy. They don't have the time to go have all those meetings. And y'all have a lot of members that, that this is their volunteer. Like they want to do this. They have the time and energy and they're going to go have those meetings, ask the hard questions. And by the time I know through y'all's vetting process, like by the time it's approved and you're sending it to me, it's like, it's like, then all I have to decide is this align with where our giving plan as a family or as business are for the year. It's like, I know it's very well vetted. I can't say yes every time. Cause sometimes like, well, this year we really want to focus on these things and that's not in this box, but I'm like, I need to send this to a buddy of mine. So hopefully y'all can continue to grow that and grow the impact of the Phoenix club. Cause I know a lot of your members or their families do have the means to do something and I do passionately believe everybody should do something. Well, and it's interesting what you said. Um, I actually connected two pieces there. One was where you were talking about, hey, I was you know 24 in a 100% commission role just trying to make it, trying to survive. And you know some of these nonprofits, I mean, as an organization, you're in a 100% commission role. <laughs> you know, you're just trying to survive. And sometimes when you're in survival mode, you don't necessarily make the best decisions. Not because of malintent or, or lack of thinking, but just you're in survival mode. Um, so even just for lack of a better term, forcing them to slow down and think through it can help, um, alleviate some of those stresses and some of those fears. Absolutely. I mean, yes, absolutely. Like you're right. Like they're just feeling the pressure. I gotta go raise more money, but it's like, that might be a hindrance to them. They might need to set a solid, more solid foundation before they go try to grow. Right. Right. What, so where would you like to see Nashville five years from now? Well, I do believe that our city has to work for everyone. I mean, you and I were talking, I was asking you before we recorded, like, I'm like, Oh, you're an immigrant first generation. Like, do you believe America is the greatest country? You're like, Yes. And, and I, I kind of feel the same way. Like America is a great country, but like a lot of people, it feels like that we're getting to be a much more divided nation. Like the system works for a lot of people and probably a lot of the members of the Phoenix club, but it doesn't work for a lot of people from North Memphis, you know? And so how do we as a city, as we continue to grow in affluence and, you know, affluence and influence, how do we like bring other people up with us? Um, because, you know, there's a lot of people in North Nashville that the system or the city doesn't work for. And so how do we as a city, for the people that have been so fortunate financially with the growth of Nashville, how do we help those people that feel left behind? Cause the single mom's working at Burger King 10 hours a day. And even though they pay $20 an hour now, not 15, she does everything else in Nashville. So expensive. She's, she's barely, you know, buying food every week. And it's like, how do we help those people? Right. It's one of those things where uh, we talked about becoming parents before we started recording and, um, it took me becoming a dad 
and my wife and I talking about this where I'm like, I don't know how single parents, I literally don't know. I don't, I, I can't, I don't know. I don't know how single parents do it. I actually don't. I, you got a job you're working, you're stressed out, and this little monster is terrorizing your house. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> and everything in between. And I'm sitting here like, man, we've got two functioning grown adults working with each other and we're overwhelmed. So I always joke with my wife. I said, we better keep our marriage healthy because neither of us can do this on our own. I'm like, raising kids is full contact sport. I'm like, I have, I mean, my mom pretty much did on her own. I'm like, I don't even know how you do it. Like, it is so hard. I'm very passionate about single moms. I'm like, I don't even know how. It's hard for me and my wife to raise three kids and both of us love them and are, you know, theoretically high functioning adults. And it's like, you know, it's hard to raise children. I can't imagine the stress of a single mom. Speak, uh, going back to your mom, I'm, I'm curious about this. Does she ever feel like she's in the twilight zone seeing where you are today? Well, Pat's actually met my mom. My mom works at Anchor. So we moved my mom up here from Memphis seven years ago. She's my uh, director of corporate culture, which is a, a funny story because my mom needed to retire. You know, she had just struggled her whole life and I had been very fortunate. And I was like, hey, mom, move to Nashville. You can spend more time. I'm going to have to start a family and, you know, it'd be awesome. My kids, we can, you know, set you up in a, a better place to live. And, um, She's like, ah, oh, son, I can't, like, I do need to retire, but I can't, um, I can't have you financially support me. Like, that's just backwards. Kids shouldn't have to. I said, mom, it'd be a blessing. You sacrifice everything for us. And I've been so fortunate. Like, let me help you. And she's like, well, I would like to move, but you can help me. You got to give me a job. And I'm like, all right, you can come work in my office. We'll figure out. So my mom works here three days a week. And uh, anybody who's ever stopped by Anchor, my mom's a, a big personality and she's here Monday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So stop by and see her. But um, but she, her job is just kind of love on the team and, you know, take care of all the employees. And um, but it's I have. It, yes, but it is like every day is the twilight zone for her because she sees the business we've been blessed to run. And um, and she's like, I can't just. I just never thought this was even possible. So she's just, and my little brother's had a lot of success here in town too. And um, my mom is just like super grateful for what we've been able to do. I love that. That, that warms my heart. (laughs) Uh, She just Monday, Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, she just comes in and loves on everybody. I loves on my team. And I always joke that uh, nobody at anchor cares if I quit. I always say if on a Monday meeting, I told the team I was leaving nobody'd care. All they'd be like is they'd be like, is Linda coming with you? And, and if, if my mom stays, the company exists. If my mom ever leaves, I think we're just going to shut the doors. Like I always, <laughs> I always joke. I go, mom, if you knew what a hostile takeover was, like if you ever read any business books, you could literally just take the company over and they'd all go with you tomorrow. And I was like, they love my mom. And I would hope they like me, but I always laugh. I was like, mom, they're more loyal to you than they are to me. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Well, and I love the, I love the it, kind of the evolution that she can see, um, you know, from struggling and getting those free Delta tickets to, you know, Hey, my son owns the business, <laughs> you know, the, uh, it, it's gotta be, I don't know, dude, I'm, I'm excited when my 18 month old figures out, you know, that I was excited when she figured out she could take off her own diaper and run around the house. But, <laughs> I mean, you're running, you're running the risk of the fact she might pee all over the floor, but it's super, yeah. I'm like, man, I'm really impressed that you figured that out. Me too. Like take that to a whole nother level. I know, man. I'm like, I, I think the same thing, but I mean, Hey, credit to my mom. Like, you know, not, not everybody's even blessed with one good parent, but like my mom just raised us with a hard work ethic. And she was I always joking because she said like, we're not that good looking. We're not that smart, but we all know how to work. And it was like, mm-hmm. she was like, America's a great country. You guys can just go hustle and you can create your, like, you don't have to grow up. Like you grew up like this, but you don't have to live like this. She's like, but work your butt off, treat people well, be honest, like work hard. And like, this is a great, great country. And so, um, you know, she just taught us from a young age, like, that if you want to apply yourself and work hard, like this is a great country where you can create a lot of opportunities for you and your family. Right. Right. I love that. I think that's the perfect, perfect place to end this podcast. Um, Micah, if folks want to learn more about anchor or you or anything that you guys are doing, where, where can they go? 
Um, well, they can go to our website. Uh, it's anchor INV like victor.com. They can look me up on LinkedIn and send me a message. You know, I do feel like part of my platform is trying to inspire other business owners to have an impact. So if any of them have an interest of like, well, how could I get involved in the city or how could I use my business for impact? Have them send me a note because in this kind of next season of my career, I, I've, feel like part of my job is to inspire others to help people like we were talking about that the system might not work for. So if anybody's interested in that, and I always tell people like, just start giving away 1% of your profits, like just go do something because what they will find is selfishly, like they'll get hooked on it. And Pat knows this, y'all, y'all do so many good, much good work. But like, once you, I do encourage people, you got to get involved with something you care about. Like, so it might be single moms, but like, then just go volunteer and help them and pack Christmas presents or give diapers away. And you will leave, they'll be thanking you and you'll be like, I should be thanking you. Like that had way, I got way more out of these two hours tonight than you guys got from me giving you diapers or whatever. It'll, they'll get hooked on it like a drug and then they'll just want to start doing more of it. So, um, but if any of your listeners are interested in philanthropy or using their business for impact, I I would be happy to connect with them. I love that. I love that. And I just checked out anchor inv.com and I really am digging y'all's building right here. (laughs) Thank you. The white one with the anchor on it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Thank Uh, you. Pat, any parting words? No, just a, Thank you, Micah, for giving us some time. But I think more importantly, just setting such a high standard for everybody in your orbit and and our members, especially. I think you're the kind of person that, you know, we as a club are ultimately aspiring to to become. So I just appreciate you. Appreciate you setting setting such a good example for us. And I don't say that to to flatter you. I really genuinely mean that. And I think that. I think that the more we can be in touch with folks like you as a club, the the better our membership is and ultimately the the better our community is. So thank you. Well, and I want to thank you guys. I'm super proud of you guys. I mean, y'all have, y'all are the future leaders of Nashville. And so the Phoenix club, I mean, there's so many sharp young guys in there and it's like, you guys can help change our city and, Pat, I've been so impressed with you and different people I've met over the years, and Matt Pierce and Boots and all these guys. But it's like you guys have a chance to help continue the momentum for all of us. So uh, I applaud you all for what you're doing and thankful to have you here in town doing good work. I love that. Well, again, I appreciate you uh, taking your time and and you know, recording with us. And I can't wait for people to hear your story. That's one of the things that's most exciting to me about this podcast is getting to hear those stories. And I I don't know, maybe you are very open and sharing with some of the things that you shared with us today. Um, But I would wager to bet that a lot of folks who know you maybe don't know your background and don't know the story and what's what I find so incredibly interesting. So thank you again. And for folks listening, phoenixclubofnashville.org, you can reach out to us on any and all social media, et cetera. And uh, outside of that, we'll talk to you guys soon.